All right, so so I, I was in Home Depot on Friday, and I and I saw someone who goes to Element there checking out. They're like, oh, and the first thing they question goes, oh, let me see your fingers, because you know because I was working and stuff. I had no band aids on my fingers, and I subsequently went home and was drilling this thing, and it slipped off the screw and into my finger. So I am sporting Buzz Lightyear this morning. People keep asking, where's Ryan? Uh, Ryan is in Cabo San Lucas. Yeah, nice, right? Yeah. So don't drink the water. But anyway, so uh, he'll be back next week. And we had this whole thing about when he was going to be gone. He couldn't, he couldn't remember, didn't know. And so he's back for one week. And then if you guys know who Sean Jones is, he's the guy that did music before Ryan started doing it. Uh, and so he and his wife will be back on September 1st. And they're going to be doing, he's going to be doing music leading that morning. Sean Jones is our giant ginger. Uh, he stands like six foot four or six, and he's got like red hair. It's, it's just awesome. When, when, he, when they went off to school, we, all, we made these shirts, and these say, we're going to miss the giant ginger, and had like the band with the big, tall, red. So some of you don't even know who he is, but anyway, he'll be back. Uh, I got one thing to tell you about, and that is geocaching, uh, the men's. The men's ministry, they are putting together a, uh, like a scavenger hunt for adults. Uh, you can have kids come too, but Yay! Anyway, but it's geocaching, so you have to have like, like a phone or some GPS software. You'll get coordinates. You've got to go there, find the thing to find the next place where you're going. So it, it is going to be fun. And then you're going to end up with a barbecue at the end. It's all going to be sweet and awesome. So you guys can all just argue about directions in the car as you're looking at your GPS. And, you know, we're just helping you to, to put these things. But sign up in the back if you want to do this. If you just have a couple people, let us know. We'll put other people in your car so it's like a whole family affair. You have no idea how many people are, like, doing this right now. I understand. It is hot in here. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> how do you know what that is? Sinners. Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you don't have to shut it off. Uh, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with it in your smartphone. So why not you stand with me for reading God's Word? We will get started. This is Hebrews 11, verses 37 to 40. And it says, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And literally in the Greek that means that with us they will be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand more and more what it means to trust you and walk in faith with you, that it wouldn't be what we define it, but it is what you define it as, and that we as your children can make a difference in the world around us because of how you have redeemed and saved us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week five of the Stupid Summer series. It is expository. Uh, Just kidding. It is topical. It is not expository. It means we're going to talk about a topic and in this case, again, is our own stupidity. You're welcome. Uh, some of you guys, you are going to hate today because I am going to name names. And some of the names I name may be even people that you might like. And when I am done, either you're not going to like me or you're going to change your view about them, though I probably assume you're just going to not like me. It's okay. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. Or my big boy britches today. So, so we'll, we'll be okay. 
And sometimes it's like, hey, they're on TV. They must be right. TV just makes you more crazy. That's what I'm saying. Again, there are some things that we believe as Christians that have implications in how we actually live the life God intends for us to live. You could probably name a few things that Christians believe that are stupid. You could probably name more things that people believe Christians believe that are just stupid. Uh, a few years ago, there was this whole craze where uh, the Holy Spirit moved and he turns people's feelings and their teeth into gold, which caused one writer to say, you know, couldn't he just turn them into teeth? Wouldn't that be better? So as we go through some of this stuff, hopefully we'll just make you go, huh, and think about some things. In the New Testament, the Bereans were people who didn't blindly even follow the Apostle Paul. Everything Paul came in and Paul said to them, they checked out with Scripture, making sure that what he said was actually true. Ah! Acts 17, 10, and 11 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So you have the Apostle Paul, eventual writer of scripture, God's spokesman, and they check out everything he said. And rather than Paul being offended, Hey, I'm God's man, how dare you question me? Paul says it was a noble thing that they did, that they went and checked the scriptures. You and I need to follow that example because many times there are things that are widely taught today that clearly contradict the scriptures. And sometimes these people who teach these things will use scriptures to prove what they say when the scriptures actually say the exact opposite of what they say. Now, sometimes as a pastor, I am in situations where I really don't know what to say. I don't have an answer. Uh, People are dying, lying in a bed. And people around them are praying for a cure. Now, it's never bad to pray. You should always pray. But every once in a while, when sitting next to a hospital bed or a bed at someone's home, the people who I'm talking to are talking about what they're going to do next year on vacation with this person. You look at this person, and you know they are going to die in the next day or two. But they're still talking about the vacation that they're going to take because they have faith God's going to heal them. And the next day, their loved one dies, and they think God has let them down. I know some teenagers who a few years ago had some friends who had a loved one die. The family and their church kept this dead person in their house for days while they prayed for a resurrection because God told one of their prophets that this person would not die. And when they did die, well, that person couldn't be wrong, could they? No. And so it must mean a resurrection. So they kept this person in this house for days and days and days. And I had damage control to do because a lot of these kids thought God had failed or that they didn't have enough faith and that the failure was because they didn't have enough faith and it was their fault. And for months, these kids and many of their parents limped along, spiritually speaking. They were disillusioned with God, with prayer, with the impotence of their faith. But that meltdown had nothing to do with Jesus letting anybody down. It had nothing to do with what the Bible promises. You know, oh, the Bible's promises are hollow. It doesn't have anything to do with stuff like that. It's a predictable result of placing our faith in faith. And the stupid summer topic today, the myth is that if we have enough faith, we can do or fix anything. Now, most people take Jesus' words out of context and get a corrupted view of faith. In Matthew 17, 20, and 21, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So people will say things, Oh, we have faith that can move mountains. In, in the context of this, Jesus is actually looking out over onto Herod's mountain. Herod had moved dirt and sand to build this mountain. And Jesus is saying, look at that. It's a whole cultural context of what's going on. He's not saying, you're going to move mountains. And he talks clearly about what faith is throughout the scriptures. But there are a lot of people who teach that faith is a mixture of intellectual and emotional self-control, that if you can properly harness that, it will literally change outcomes through positive thinking and visualization. 
It is why if you're watching a baseball game and your team is down by five runs at the end of the ninth inning and there's two outs, well, don't think negative thoughts. Just think positive thoughts and you might win. Visualize a big inning because if you believe you can win, you just might win. You're going to lose. Okay? All right. (laughs) Medical crises, too. It happens a lot. Sometimes tests come back and it shows the cancer has metastasized. Well, don't panic. It can be beat. Just think positively and have faith. Maybe you have a son and he is like five foot two inch senior in high school and he's got dreams of playing for the NBA. Well, whatever you do, don't discourage him. Who knows? It could happen. It's not going to happen. All right? It's not going to happen. I, I will be the voice of reason for this teenager today. It's not going to happen. Go get a job. Okay. You know. <laughs> But, but we tell them nothing's impossible as long as you have dreams and you have unwavering faith. Now, successful people will tout faith as a key to their achievements. Survivors of great tragedies, they will cite it as a source of their endurance. And motivational speakers make a ton of money spousing this and so on. Even, even book writers write this garbage and people just gobble it up. I'll give you an example. A while ago, a lady named Rhonda Byrne wrote a book called The Secret. It is a bestseller. Millions and millions and millions of copies sold of this book. This is what she says. The creative process used in The Secret, which was taken from the New Testament in the Bible, is an easy guideline for you to create what you want in three simple steps. Okay, now people are, oh, from the New Testament, she must be a Christian. Oh, this must be biblical. It's not biblical. Oprah likes it. Oh, I'm already naming names. Here we go. All right. And what are the simple steps? It is ask, believe, and receive. Just have faith. So I tried it this morning. And you know what? Boom, there were donut holes. It works. But then I turned on the radio to 102.5 and country music was still on, so it must not work. Now, at one... Boo! Okay, whatever. At one point, uh, Rhonda Byrne, she, she was overweight. And so she wanted to go from fat to thin. So she said she thought thin thoughts. She said she didn't even so much as look at people who were overweight. She says, if you see people who are overweight, do not observe them, but immediately switch your mind to the picture of you in your perfect body and feel it. As a result, she says, I now maintain my perfect weight of 116 pounds and I can eat whatever I want. So according to the secret, the error is to think that food is responsible for weight gain. Who knew? Okay. (laughs) She says this, the most common thought that people hold and I held to is that food was responsible for my weight gain. That is a belief that does not serve you because it's all about serving you, apparently. And in my mind, now it is complete balderdash. Food is not responsible for putting on weight. It is your thought that food is responsible for putting on weight that actually has food put on weight. It's like a tongue twister. Remember, she says, thoughts are the primary cause of everything, and the rest is effects from those thoughts. Think perfect thoughts, and the results will be perfect weight. Just have faith. See, you might think this sounds stupid, but she has millions of followers. Maybe some of you might have even read the book and said, oh, it was on Oprah's book club. I should read that. I mean, maybe that's you. But taken to its logical conclusion, just as her followers must avoid overweight people so they don't become overweight, you've got to also avoid cancer victims from fear of uh, having cancer yourself, or you've got to avoid the poor for fear of becoming poor yourself. In other words, you've got to avoid the very people Jesus tells you to care for. She says, don't even so much as look at them. So you're thinking, okay, well, maybe she's not a Christian, okay? Maybe it's not taken from the New Testament. Surely Christians wouldn't say anything like that, or people who claim to be Christians. Well, I'll give you some examples. There's a guy named Kenneth Copeland. He says this, any image that you get down on the inside of you that is so vivid when you close your eyes, you see it, it will come to pass. 
Benny Hinn says, words create reality. Joyce Meyer says, words are containers for power. They carry creative or destructive power, positive or negative power. And so we need to be speaking right things over our lives and about our futures if we expect to have good things happen. Because what you say today is what you'll probably end up having tomorrow. Marilyn Hickey says this, what do you need? Start creating it. Start speaking about it. Start speaking it into being. And of course, this all has to do with money, right? Speak to your billfold and say, you big, thick billfold full of money. (laughs) I can honestly say I've never done that. Maybe that's my problem. I don't know. Speak to your checkbook. Say, you checkbook, you, you've never been so prosperous since I owned you. You're just jammed full of money. Now, what I do do is if we go into the Japanese restaurant, they got the Buddha, Sitting there, I walk by and I go, money, money, money. <laughs> Is it anybody? It's just me. Anybody else? I don't think it's going to happen. I just think it's funny. Whatever. Okay, uh, when you get to the birth of John the Baptist, his, his father's name is Zachariah. Zachariah is a really old man. God promises you're going to have a son. Zachariah's like, my wife's really old. I'm really old. I don't think this can happen. So what God does is he renders Zachariah speechless during the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Joel Olstein says this. Why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zachariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. What? God knows the power of our words. He knows we prophesy our future, and he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. To make his point, Joel Olstein, he abuses scripture. He writes in Romans 4.17 that the scripture tells us that we are to call the things that are not as if they already were. But this is not what the scriptures say in Romans 4.17. What it tells you is that God is the one who gives life, not us, and God is the one who calls the things that are not as if they are not us. This kind of thinking has nothing to do with what the Bible calls faith. This is more about faith and faith and faith in God. It's what so many people teach today. We are taught to believe that what God wants from you and I when confronted with insurmountable odds in a terrible circumstance is faith. All you can muster up, all your doubts removed, count it as it is done, faith that can fix anything. It is God's cure-all and God's magic potion, and as long as you have no doubt, God has no choice but to do exactly what you want. It is a law of the universe. Apparently, it even trumps God's sovereignty, though I would hate to be the one who has to tell him that. Part of the problem is that in in the English language, sometimes we kind of mess everything up. You know, faith is a deeply rooted concept in the New Testament and the Old Testament scriptures, but a lot of our modern ideas about it aren't. Ooh, I'm being attacked by a fly. I'm going to think positively. Kill it. Okay. (laughs) Did it work? No. Okay, whatever. Now, much of the blame can be in, in how you and I translate certain words out of the original manuscripts. And it's not that the translators are unskilled or deceptive. It's sometimes you have all these ancillary things get placed upon words when you take it from one language to another. So what I want to do is give you a quick comparison of how we use the words faith, belief, and trust in modern-day English and then what that would look like in the Greek language of the New Testament because I think it can be eye-opening. Okay, first off, faith. Okay, For most of us, the word faith, it conjures up an image of confidence. It is like no fear, no doubt out. It's often determined by our feelings and how we feel about something. I just got to really just stir up that faith and it's got to, oh, I just got to feel like I've got a lot. This is why most teaching on faith focuses on eradicating your doubts and your fears and your negative thoughts. It's also why you got to have faith means think positively. Now the word belief. The word belief conjures up an image of intellectual assent where we believe something. And we say we believe something as long as we think it's probably true. But our, our beliefs are thought to re- reside between our ears and our brains somewhere. So we're not particularly 
puzzled when somebody claims to believe something like UFOs or Bigfoot or evolution or creationism or even Jesus, but live as if they don't believe it. You know, for most of us, beliefs are intellectual, and then acting upon them becomes optional. And you can see this in, in how people talk about the gospel and do evangelism. We tell the Jesus story, and we ask, do you believe it? And if somebody says, oh, yeah, I believe it, we say, oh, yeah, fire insurance, you're going to heaven, everything's good. When belief in the Bible has a whole lot more stuff that kind of goes with it. Now, the word trust, in contrast to faith and belief, when you use the word trust, it carries an assumption that there's going to be a corresponding action on the back side of that. If you trust a person, it shows up in your response to that person. You came in this morning. You trusted these chairs would hold you up when you sat down. Most of you, that, that trust was borne out. If it didn't, we're sorry. We'll fix it next week. Hopefully, it'll be better. But, you know, we're trying to... Uh, a lot of people have trust that coffee is going to get you going in the morning. A lot of you guys trust James and Christy with your kids. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Whatever. Now, each of these words carries a distinctly different meaning in the English language. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, there's a big surprise in the Scriptures... Almost every time you find one of these three words in the English New Testament, it is a translation of the same root Greek word. And this word is called pistis. Like, what did he say in church? Pistis. Okay, there's the word. Don't giggle like you're in junior high. We're okay. Now, just just stay in Hebrews. I'm going to go to some other places, but stay in Hebrews because we'll keep coming back to that today. Now, uh, Hebrews 11.1, this is what it says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That word faith is the word pistis. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That word believe is the same root word pistis. John 14.1 in the NIV, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. That word trust is the same root word pistis. In one instance, it's a noun. The other one's it's a verb. It means that the Bible knows nothing of all the sharp distinctions we make between faith, belief, and trust. Biblically, they not only overlap, they're practically synonymous. The writers of scriptures would, would be like, what are you guys doing with all these distinctions between faith and belief and trust? It's, it's all the same thing. And so what kind of faith does God actually want from his people? Well, the kind of faith that the Bible advocates and God wants from us has far more to do with our actions than our feelings. Now, you are saved by grace. You know, we are lost. Jesus comes to save us, dies, rises from the dead. We are saved by grace. But when you believe in Jesus, when you have faith in him, it should be tied to what you do. The Bible so closely ties faith and actions that in James 2, 19 to 26, it actually ridicules the very idea of someone claiming, someone claiming to have faith and not actually acting upon that faith. See, God doesn't care if you've mastered the art of positive thinking. He is not impressed by all the mental gymnastics of visualization. He doesn't even insist that you eradicate all doubts. In fact, more than once in the Bible, he answers prayers for people whose faith was so weak that God said, I'm going to do this, and God did something, and they didn't even believe it. I mean, we just went through the entire book of Genesis. You got Abraham and Sarah. They, they prayed, God, we want a baby. 25 years, we want a baby. God shows up a year before he gives them the baby and says, next year, I'm going to give you a baby. And what do they do? They laugh. <laughs> right. We buy diapers for ourselves. <laughs> and they laugh. And what does God do? God brings a baby. In, in Acts chapter 12, Peter is in jail. And you've got these people in this house, and they're praying, God, get people out of jail. God, do a miracle. God, please do something, right? So an angel shows up, drops his shackles, leads Peter out of jail. Peter goes to his house, knocks on the door. They open the door, ah, and they shut the door. What is it? It's his ghost. Because they didn't believe God could actually do it. 
Now, the simple act of praying was an act of faith. They trusted God to do what he commanded, so it said pray. So, okay, God will pray, even though they were sure God wasn't going to be able to follow through on the backside. God still did it. That shows you it's not about faith in faith. It's about faith in God. Now, to better understand what biblical faith is, how it works, uh, Hebrews 11 is this thing called the hall of faith. It's this idea of these lengthy examples of all these people who had faith and what it looked like in the end and what it produced. And so it starts in verse 4 with Adam's son Abel, moves on to Enoch in verse 5, Noah verse 7, Abraham verse 8, Isaac verse 20, Jacob verse 21, Joseph verse 22, Moses verse 23, and lays out all these little vignettes and describes their steps of faith and their great victories that followed. But then it's kind of like it starts to run out of steam. Maybe people are, you know, losing focus and running out of attention span, maybe like you. And so the writer then goes on and he adds 12 more examples. But what he does here is he only offers a name or a cryptic reference to a certain thing and these victories that they accomplished. It's really kind of an inspiring list. And if you just took it, you may think, well, see, that's what faith does. It gives me victories. I can conquer anything. Kingdoms won, lions muzzled, flames quenched, weaknesses turned to strength, enemies routed, the dead raised. It's a pretty impressive list, but the writer doesn't stop there. What he rounds it out with is what we looked at when we first started this morning. After reciting all these victories, he switches gears and changes directions. In verses 35 to 38, he speaks of people whose faith led them down a different path, people who were tortured and jeered and flogged and imprisoned and stoned, sawed in two, put to death by the sword. And he ends with a reminder that still others were rewarded with financial destitution and persecution and mistreatment, all because of their faith. Then in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, he says this, And all these things, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, these aren't the faith rejects, the losers, the ones who couldn't get it right. These were the men and women whose faith was applauded by God, yet their faith didn't fix anything in their own minds. In some cases, their faith made matters a lot worse. Now, when you go into churches, most churches don't teach you this, and most teachers don't teach children this in children's church, except at Element, because Christy is telling your kids this right now. Because she's like, okay, kids, you're going to learn how trusting and obeying God might get you torn in two, thrown into jail, hated by your friends, forced to drive an old beater car your entire life. Yay! Don't you want to follow Jesus? It thins the herd pretty quick. It really does. You know? But essentially, that's what the Bible says about faith, at least the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. It may lead you to victories or it may lead you to prison. And which it will be is God's call. It is not ours. So this then leads to a question. If, I, if faith is primarily about trusting God and have to do what he actually says and it doesn't fix everything and it only makes matters worse sometimes, why bother? I'll give you two things. Number one, the main reason that stands out above everything else is it's what God wants from you and I. Hebrews 11 verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. If God really is God and not some mystical force, and then so if you know who he is and what he wants you to do, those things have to go hand in hand. It's very important to pay attention to. And secondly, even if faith can't fix all the problems you face, it does promise to fix our greatest dilemma and our greatest problem, which is the issue of our sin. What do you do when you stand before a holy and righteous and perfect God who knows every one of our secrets that we try to hide? What keeps us from becoming toast? Nothing. That's where the real power of biblical faith kicks in. Jesus promises that those who believe in him receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. This is John 3.16 and Romans 1.5, Romans 5.1, James 2.21-23, 1 Peter 1.9, 1 John 2.3-5. And a thousand years from now, all the things we try so hard to fix with all of our positive thinking and visualization and drive out all of our doubts, prayers, they're not going to matter. They're going to be a distant memory, if remembered at all. And the only thing that will matter is our future and our face-to-face relationship with Jesus that is born out of our faith. That is what matters. See, biblical faith gives us something that positive thinking and visualization can't provide. 
It gives us something we can depend on to always take us where God wants us to go, to trust ourselves into his hands. It's, it's kind of like a map, maybe like this whole geocaching thing we're going to be doing. But it's not always an easy map to follow. If you're ever in a car and you're arguing with people about where to go on the map, there's sometimes it's really hard to follow. It takes time, experience, occasional leap into the unknown, and it's frustrating and scary at times to just trust your life to a map. But if you're actually led by it and you trust yourself to it, it's a trustworthy guide guaranteed to take you where you actually need to be. In many ways, what I can relate this to is my own love-hate relationship with my mapping software on my iPhone. That's a biblical faith, okay? I, I am EDD, ADD all the time. I never bother to grab directions before I go anywhere. I have no idea how I make it home half the time that, that I make it home. I mean, I got the Pacific Ocean on one side and the mountains on the other, and without that, I would not know what direction was north, south, east, and west. I was in Mexico, and I'm like going this way, and I'm like, you're going south. I'm, I'm going north. Where's the ocean? So I'm going the wrong way. I mean, it, it's just crazy how, how that works. I mean, I mean, seriously, I am the poster child for search and rescue. All right? I'm just like, I don't know how I get there, how I'm, how I'm getting home. But for a good thing for me is I live in a day when there's GPS and, you know, it's in the, my phone, which if you have an Android, yours works better than mine, but what, whatever. Okay, so, so w- despite my phone, you know, and telling me sometimes where I have to go, I have the time always think it's wrong. I think it hasn't been downloaded right. I don't think it's, I don't think it's working right. I get a flash of annoyance at what it's doing. I wonder why. I, seriously, they pay these people just to put streets in here. That's their entire job. Why can't they get it right? But actually, I'm the one that's wrong. And sometimes, you know, I make a wrong turn because I just think I'm right, and then Siri or Google Maps starts nagging me, and in a mildly disgusting tone, you need to turn around at the next off-ramp. Turn right, turn around, recalculating, recalculating. I mean, I want to throw it out the window, but before I do, I realize I know how many times I have thought I was right and how many times I've actually ended up being wrong. You know, and sometimes my GPS, it isn't aware of maybe a street or two that's, that's in there. Sometimes it takes me on a route that goes all over the place, but it always takes me where I need to go. And still, again, sometimes I just know I'm right. I am just certain. And I don't care how many times she spouts off recalculating, and I end up somewhere I'm not supposed to be. And kind of, in essence, that's, that's like a crisis of faith. You know, we've got a choice to make. Do we, do we trust ourselves to our own sense of direction? You know, that always seems to go in the wrong place. Or do we trust Jesus and where he's calling us to go? You know, you, you probably, hopefully, have a better answer to that after this message. You know, based on past experiences with my own GPS, sometimes I'll just shrug my shoulders and go where Maps tells me to go. I'll make a turn that, you know, makes no sense to me. And as I do, my, my pulse quickens. My stomach gets a little upset. I'm all, my mind fills it like with images of carjackings and muggings and things like that. But somehow, east turns into west, and the wrong route gets me exactly where I'm supposed to be. And once I get to my destination, it doesn't matter how many doubts or concerns I had along the way. You know, as I follow the directions, you know, when it says recalculate and get back on track, I end up where I need to be. See, that's how biblical faith works. When rightly applied and understood, it doesn't matter how many doubts you have. It doesn't even matter if we're convinced that all is lost. Ultimately, it matters who our faith is in. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And whether you have just a tiny bit of faith like that of a mustard seed, or you have all the faith in the world, we follow God's instructions because God is big enough to bring us home. And he knows our lives, and he's nowhere where we've been, and we know where we're supposed to go. And faith is not a skill that you will ever master. It's not an impregnable shield that keeps you from all of life's hardships and trials. It is not a magic potion that removes every mess. It's kind of like a map that we follow, and it's designed to guide us on a path called righteousness. And along the way, it doesn't promise to fix every flat tire. It doesn't route you around every single traffic jam. It doesn't stop the road rage from the guy that you cut off while you merged incorrectly. You know? But it takes you exactly where God wants you to go. And that's where we need to be. 
because it is God's story and his road and his call and his plan. Faith is not about us. It's not about all you can muster up. It's about him. And today, if you are somebody who's maybe had a, had a warped view of what faith actually is and you've never trusted Jesus because of your warped view of what faith is, we encourage you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is one of the reasons every week we come to this place of communion because it reminds us of a people that we lay our entire lives at his feet because we trust him. We have faith that he is the one who can lead us in the places that we need to go. And so that's why you take the cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. That's why you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. Because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because he is the one who saves us. Our faith doesn't save us. He saves us. And so your faith should not be in your faith. Your faith should always be in him. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to sing a couple songs along with them to uh, take communion. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you're in a spot today where you have had you know, your, your faith in all the wrong places and all the wrong things, and you just thought, I have to muster up enough, well, they would love to pray with you about that. They would love to help redirect and refocus you know, what faith is really supposed to be. Because, again, it's not about all that you can muster up. It's about all that he has already done for you the cross and the resurrection, and then what he still continues to do today. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, so giving is part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what God is doing in and through us, and giving is also an act of faith. Uh, and there's some food in the back. What's back there now? I visualized cookies this morning, so therefore they're in the back. Oh, you're there. I thought you were going to go... <laughs> Uh, we encourage you to grab something to eat so that you can connect to somebody else and maybe ask some of the questions on, on the back of the sermon notes and maybe begin to redefine maybe how faith has been incorrectly applied in your life and how it's been correctly applied in your life and maybe start on that path to understanding what God really calls us to. Because, you know, faith doesn't fix everything in our lives. It recenters us on the person of Jesus Christ. And that is where our lives need to be centered. And so today, I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you, as our God, would help us to understand what faith really is. What trusting in you looks like. What belief in you looks like. And that we would live lives that fully honor you. Because we understand your faithfulness and what you have done. That it is in Jesus' name that we trust. And we don't trust so much in ourselves. But in your grace and your goodness that has been extended to us. God, quite frankly, we are like the, the people in Matthew 7 who keep trying to hang bad fruit on a good tree. And we just need to let it fall and trust you in faith for the good fruit that you want to provide. And so today... Have us live as a people of faith centered upon you so when we are outside of these walls, people know that our God is gracious and our God is good and our God redeems and our God restores because you save and you are good and teach us to center our faith in that. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.